welcome, shiny happy people, to another episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick, me, and there's Mr. 80s. Hi everybody, this is Daryl. Thanks for joining us again. Today, should be an interesting topic, because uh, I've always thrown around this term, the blockbuster album. And it means one thing to me, but it sounds like it might mean something different to you. So I'm curious to... uh, kind of dive into that a little bit should we start Mm -hmm. by maybe explaining what we think a blockbuster album is yeah i think so all right well to me a blockbuster album is pretty much just defined by how many hit singles were peeled off and to me it's uh very emblematic of of one particular era that basically it started with thriller and then uh, carried on throughout the rest of the 80s decade so that's kind of in in summary what i think it is okay i have a similar uh concept of what a, you know a blockbuster album is um where it's you know the the big album with tons of singles that's you know really gone big and mainstream you know and to carry it past you know before and after the 80s i was you know that's where i was kind of looking at you know where where does that fall into uh other parts of non 80s history because i think the 80s dominated the blockbuster album era i mean it's uh, surprising to me you know how many you can rattle off that are easily 80s albums and then if you try and put that template onto other decades you're kind of like hmm um <laughs> and even another way to look at it is that uh 83 84 and 85 the grammy for album of the year went to a blockbuster album by my definition mm. so for three years running that's pretty good <laughs> so uh but your, your your take on it you know it kind of it, it it blows my whole illusion dude because for me i think that thriller was kind of ground zero for the blockbuster album i don't think they necessarily went into the studio uh, saying that we're going to end up releasing seven singles. I don't think that was... That's definitely what it was with Bad, but that's a... <laughs> well, maybe we'll get into that later in the show. But uh, Off the Wall, it had four singles. I don't think really? it did... I don't think it did a whole lot on the pop chart, though. I think at that point, yeah. it was still what they were calling... I think I think Billboard was still calling it the soul music chart mm-hmm. back then. Uh, and it was it was big there, and I do think that Thriller was you know calculated to be his crossover move. I mean, why else would you bring in Eddie Van Halen to <laughs> to play a guitar solo? But before we get into that, um, you know, kind of some of the stuff that you had brought up from the '70s, and we all know that the '70s had some you know humongous selling albums. The two that immediately come to mind: the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and then Fleetwood Mac's Rumors as well. Well, well yeah. But you had brought up uh, Frampton Comes Alive. Well, I think, I think if you said blockbuster album, and, and said to someone to name them, I think that they would put that somewhere in there because it kind of it seems like it's referenced as a blockbuster album. And I don't know if it really qualifies because I don't really know how many actual singles. I mean, I can only think of two. Yeah, but there there could but have it, been more. It seems, but it seems like it was such a remembered blockbuster like it was every you know i think it wasn't it uh wayne's world that referenced we yeah there was standard issue in the suburbs they yeah. got it you got it mailed to you or something yeah and so it's a know, funny it, line it's kind of it's kind of you know looked upon as a blockbuster album but by our own definition hasn't really qualified it's more it's almost like hindsight has made it 
something more than you know what it was and granted i didn't you know grow up and you know wasn't aware enough in the 70s to know uh how iconic it was at the time i'll tell you one thing that frampton comes alive did do is it ushered in the era of the live album oh yeah and not only the the era of the live album but uh live albums with new material because that was that was kind of the twist of Frampton Comes Alive is that you had new material on that record instead of your standard issue kind of used cars. Let's take the greatest hits and and put them on a live record. But with uh, with Frampton Comes Alive and with Kiss Alive, uh, and even you know locally here, uh, the Michael Stanley Band had uh, an album called Stage Pass that was. It was kind of a blend. It was another double live album. It had some stuff from their previous releases, but it had a lot of new material. And they actually, in the liner notes for one of their greatest hits albums, say point blank that they were working on a studio album called Basement Band. And that's where these new tracks were supposed to end up. And it was the record company that said, (laughs) nope, we're doing a live album because everybody's doing a live album. And so that that to me is the the really big legacy of uh, of Frampton Comes Alive. Was Cheap Trick at Budokan part of that? Uh yeah, exactly. Thought so. So yeah, there's a another a, a lot of big name things that come you know, but so that but I think I, I would call that a precursor to the idea where it's kind of the maybe the germ had been laid mm-hmm. there, but it wasn't really realized until Thriller Thriller came out and kicked everyone's ass, and they kind of go, "Oh wait, so you know a you know mainstream you know album with multiple releases, you know saturated onto the radio, and basically to me, uh, I always think of Thriller as you know like the way Wayne's World referenced." Uh, Frampton Comes Alive, to me, you you know, if you were growing up in the 80s, you either owned or know somebody who owned Thriller. And probably just owned it yourself, everybody, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, everybody, had it. everybody had it or was one step removed from someone they know intimately who had it. Best friend, you know, brother, sister, cousin. I mean, there was one step between you and this album in the <laughs> 80s, period. One degree of separation. Yeah. And another thing, you know, to me, Thriller is, and we'll be getting into some other albums from the 80s that, you know, kind of uh, caught the cold from Thriller, and and we'll be discussing those. But we need to spend a little time on Thriller because it was, you know, such a, a landmark. And, you know, the idea of releasing a fourth single, let alone seven, but releasing a fourth single off of an album was pretty unheard of at that point in time. We're talking about the record came out in late 82 and then you know, pretty much owned uh, 1983. <laughs> yeah. And if you think back to even the late 60s, uh, Beatles, Beach Boys kind of stuff, mm-hmm. those guys were cranking out three albums a year. <laughs> and the music industry seemed to be really focused on moving LPs and uh and so you know it was not unusual for for bands to have to produce three albums 30 songs in a year's time now there was 45 so i mean there was a single release i mean it's not like 
you know, the advent of cassette singles or something sparked this all. Right. I mean, you could have gone out and bought singles. As a matter of fact, the singles usually had a track that wasn't, you know, well, actually, did they do that back then? Where they, they did, and I, I've still tried to get my arms around that because apparently there was a point in the music industry where the prevailing wisdom was the single can't be on the album, which makes no flipping sense to me at all. But apparently that's why you ended up getting what they would do is uh, they, they'd put out an album or put out a single as a promotional track for a new album and i could be wrong on this but like for example i think that strawberry fields forever was released as the promotional single for sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band even though that song was not on that album yeah and then later on magical mystery tour comes out and then strawberry fields is put on there yeah that makes no sense at all and so by the time thriller rolls around uh you know things had evolved enough where it wasn't unusual for your big top line artists to take two or three years between albums. But even when they did, it just seemed like three singles was the magic number. Mm-hmm. You know, once, you know, if, if you had one hit, great. And they'd put out a follow-up. And if the follow-up was a hit, great. They'd put out a third one. And if the third one was a hit, they would say, well, we're done with that album. <laughs> we'll just wait till the next one comes out. And that, that's not what happened with thriller at all. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, the girl is mine. With the duet with Paul McCartney, you know, obviously, obviously a, a stab at, at mainstream, at, at, at crossover kind of success. Uh, and then Billie Jean, which, you know, finally gets on MTV. You've got a black artist on MTV. I mean, Michael was still black then. Uh, and then Beat It. And, and you know, I mean, Beat It, Billie Jean set the world on fire. Um, and, and beat it did as well because, uh, people just couldn't believe, I mean, do you, you've got to remember this. People could not believe that Eddie Van Halen was playing a guitar solo on a Michael Jackson <laughs> song. It just, it blew their minds. Well, yeah, I, I would love to know how that, how that, you know, did someone just, you know, record executive go, well, we need some, you know, fiery upstart, you know, <laughs> to, to talk to the kitties. I mean, yeah, it's just, it just seems so odd that they would pick but in you know in now you know since then you can see that you know that he was going for uh slash in black and white and he had uh uh the a female guitarist that was really good but i don't remember she like on his last one so he was someone was always picking you know talented young guitarists and the crazy thing is career. the but, crazy thing is eddie van halen wasn't even on his record label which a lot of yeah, times that's how those things that's usually work. how they go but he wasn't and so because uh, Michael was with uh, CBS at the time, now Sony Music, and Van Halen's always been on Warner. Yep. Yeah, I I, I don't know how that happened, but I, I my memory of uh, of Beat It was we didn't get uh, MTV until like maybe a year or year or two years after it started. So when they turned it on at like you know, midnight or something, or yeah, it must've been, it was, it was enough that my parents were still like, so it must've been like at eight o'clock, they turned it on mm-hmm. and the first video was beat it. <laughs> and so, you know, I, that's my, you know, introduction to Michael Jackson going, Oh, Hey, that's cool. <laughs> so if this, if this had been any other album after beat it, they'd be done. Yeah. But that's not what happened. You know, you've got Want to Be Starting Something that came out. Uh, and then the whole hoopla 
around the thriller video. <laughs> you know, human nature, PYT, and it. You know, it, even at one point, I think uh, uh, thriller had not really exhausted it. It was at the tail end of its cycle, and maybe it had. But then Stanley Jordan, that uh, jazz guitarist who. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of plays the fretboard with both hands. That's kind of his hook. He does a version of The Lady in My Life and has a big hit with that, which Lady in My Life was one of the two songs on Thriller that was not released as a single. I was going to say, I was looking at the the track list, and I'm like, that's the only one I don't remember how it goes. And then there's The Lost Little Child, a song called Baby Be Mine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was the second song on the album. You put it on, you hear one of you starting something, then it goes into Baby Be Mine. Baby Be Mine never got released as a single. Now, uh, since we were talking about the B-sides, I, I don't have any rem- rem- recollection. Were there B-sides from this album that were released on singles? I don't know what they did for the B-sides. Yeah. Because uh, Baby Be Mine obviously would be a good choice for one since it was never actually a single. But, I was know, wondering if maybe they were you know, like that and uh, Lady in My Life where you released his B-sides. Or so they may have even started purging the back catalog. That was not unusual either to like have the A-side be off of the current album they were pushing and have the B-side be off of uh, the album that came out before. Cindy Lauper, who's another artist who had a blockbuster album, which she's so unusual. And, and she kind of, I think she more kind of fell into that. I think it's just, it was kind of, I think, I don't think it was recorded. I mean, she was a, a new artist, basically. She'd been in Blue Angel, uh, but they didn't really have any uh, commercial built-in audience. I think it was merely the times of people kind of waking up and saying, hey, we can keep riding this train. <laughs> the reason I brought her up is there was one song on her album called Witness. It was the B-side to every single song that came off the album. Well, that's weird. Same B-side for all the singles. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone doing that. That's And Witness is not a bad song. Well, obviously, someone really loved it. <laughs> <laughs> buy this album. Buy this fucking song. Come on. <laughs> it's that good. Really? Okay, sure. Wow. So, I do want to bring up, because I know that She's So Unusual was on that list, and I had to, I wanted to look at the track list for it, because I was like, really? Is that Did that have that many hits off of it? Uh was Money Changes Everything a single? Yep. Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Time After Time, She Bop, All Through the Night. I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. I think the entire second side. Wow. Or no, She Bop was on the second side. An interesting thing about that album is there's actually, uh, in my opinion, there's some songs on She's So Unusual that, that they could have kept milking it. <laughs> um, yeah, Yeah, the very last song. Mm-hmm. Is is a really good one. I liked Witness, but at that point it had been on the B side so much it was not going to get released. <laughs> it had a, sort of almost like a <clears throat> ska kind of a, a reggae kind of a feel to it. Uh, and then you know she also uh, had the Prince cover on there, uh, When You Were Mine, which was oh, off of I, Dirty Mind. I didn't even recognize that track. Wow. Gee, that's hmm. Does she have you? Does she know Prince? Did she? Yeah. How did she? How did she? I mean, how did she get the rights to it? You know, give his stuff away, pretty much. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. And then it was not too uh, long after that um, that Shaka Khan, of course, covered "I Feel for You," which was on his first uh, his (laughs) first album. 
so I don't know if I should just rattle off the list of 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 albums that I think qualify as blockbuster albums. Or, yeah, no, that's that's a good idea. Because it starts with Thriller, and then She's So Unusual uh, by Cindy Lauper. Can't slow down from Lionel Richie. No jacket required. Phil from Phil Collins. And of course, Thriller was album of the year in 83. Can't Slow Down was album of the year in 84. No Jacket Required was album of the year in 85. Uh, other albums, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Sports by Huey Lewis and the News. I love the I love the non-released songs from that album. Me too. And uh, Purple Rain. Oh, yeah. From I, Prince. <laughs> There's not a bad track on that album. And uh, so you know, you've got from from eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. You know, a two year period where the blockbusters were ruling the earth. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, that's that is every you know every album. You know, every time you walk into a record store, they're playing one of those songs from those albums. All the videos. I mean, think of how many videos are in those albums. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is you know MTV. And they were still doing that thing uh, during this era where they would still release singles that did not have videos. That was happening pretty frequently because uh, there was no video for All Through the Night that I can recall off of uh, She's So Unusual. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, there weren't any videos. Um, was there a video for Penny? There wasn't, any, there wasn't one for Stuck on You. I, I think Penny no. Lover had one, but there wasn't one for Stuck on You off of... Uh, can't slow down. I'm not sure if there was one from. Uh, I think I think Penny Lover had one. Uh, no jacket required. Oh jeez. Did not have one for Inside Out. Yeah. Well, you know, and I wonder. And those songs are all like uh, light rock. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was like a a thing where you know they don't want to put it on MTV. MTV is too pop, too rock. It could be. So the light rock ones they just left to radio. And Springsteen, uh, he didn't have one for Cover Me. He didn't have one for I'm Going Down. I'm Going Down is a terrible fucking song. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that song. I, I, you know, just come up with more than one lyric. I mean, come on. I'm going down, down, down. I'm going down, down. Come on. (laughs) You are Bruce fucking Springsteen. Write me a lyric. Jeez. Oh man! Uh, sports, <laughs> sports didn't have one for walking on a thin line. Nope, great song. Uh, Purple rain, Purple rain. I don't think there was one for I would die for you. Nope. Well, no, no. I guess I, I was. I was thinking there was. They might have. Uh, did they have? Uh, a performance of that in the uh, in the movie because I was determined tr- there was something that they used a clip from the movie as the that was uh, the let's video. go crazy let's go crazy yeah. and, and purple rain I think purple rain was a performance clip hmm. yeah you're probably right so it was it's just it's interesting because every I think everybody in hindsight you know they they talk about the how powerful MTV was and how you had to have a video. I mean, even remember when Pearl Jam said they were going to stop doing videos and people were like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) but even, even during, you know, the heyday, it's not as though 
every I know the one I forgot like a virgin. Oh crap, yeah. Wow. How many singles were on that? Good lord. I want to say five. Um although I could be wrong. There's the title track, there's Material Girl, there was Angel, there was Dress You Up. Um and of course Into the Groove was released at that time, but it was not on the record. It was only a single because it was from that movie she did. Material Girl, Angel, Like a Virgin, Over and Over Wasn't, Love Doesn't Live Here Anymore, or Love Don't Live Here Anymore, pardon my grammar, Dress You Up, Shibu, Shubidoo, I don't remember that one, Pretender, Stay. Yeah, so she had four. (laughs) Four monumentally. I mean, Material Girl, wow, Like a Virgin, And I think even she, I don't think Angel had a video. I actually, I don't think so either. Which that's one of my favorite singles off that album. <laughs> it's and what's funny, and we kind of we had touched on this in in a previous show, is that if a song didn't have a video, people tend to forget about it. Yeah. That's and you know, I listening to, you know, uh, '80s stations or, you know, uh, looking at '80s compilations. I mean, how many of these ones that we've named that didn't have videos are on these compilations? I mean. Most of them aren't. You and, know? Well, exactly. And I, 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 like in the case of Inside Out off of No Jacket Required and uh, Walking on a Thin Line on Sports, those were both the last singles that were released. And so I don't know if at that point you know, the label was just like, we're not going to spend any money on it. I, I really don't know. I mean, a lot of people forget, especially with Walking on a Thin Line, that that was a single. And it's an awesome song. <laughs> they didn't write it, but it's a great song. Wait, they didn't write it? Mm-mm. Who wrote it? I don't know who wrote that one, but it wasn't it wasn't hmm. the news. It wasn't Bruce Hornsby. No. <laughs> that would come on the next album <laughs> with Jacob's Ladder. Another but, good song. But it just <laughs> that that era of of kind of the, the mid eighties when these albums were, were dominating. Uh everything. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 I just mean, the, the the consciousness of the eighties was just held in those you know, few albums. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I can remember, you know, seeing, you know, the TV and everyone, you know, is, uh, everything is, you know, people are always, you know, dressing like Madonna and uh, Thriller and, you know, they're referencing, you know, the pop culture icons of dancing on the, or I, shouldn't, I was going to say dancing on the ceiling, but uh, what's the... Oh, all uh, night long? All night long. I mean, you know, when someone makes references, you know, it's just... They all are bunched up in those few albums. I can even remember how uh, David Letterman was getting a lot of uh, comedy out of the title of Susudio <laughs> that he thought was ridiculous. And, uh, you know, he just kept wondering, you know, where that came from, which obviously where it came from, as we all know now, is that it was nonsense that that they intended to go back and fill in later and they couldn't find anything that fit. And so they just said, well, to hell with it, we'll leave it. And Letterman even, you know, I mean, he was he was doing his typical Letterman thing from, you know, back in, in that time period where he was talking about it every night and just how stupid it was <laughs> and working it into conversations. And he was asking people that would come on the show what they thought it meant. And he was just, he was getting a lot of mileage out of it. And so the Phil Collins finally is a guest of on the show. And they have this sketch uh, of how it happened. And so Phil is, they're showing something from like back in the past 
when Phil was visiting the show, and he's sitting in the makeup chair, and Larry Bud Melman is in there, and he's he's hammering something, and he hits his thumb, and he like grabs his thumb, and he's like shrieking in pain. He's going, "Oh, oh, oh, ow, 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 yo, oh, Susu Studio." <laughs> and Phil is sitting in the makeup chair and kind of does that upward glance of, hmm. The Doogie Hauser. Yes. <laughs> and so that's their explanation for, for where Susudio comes from. Larry Bud Milton. Is he still with us? Uh, no, he is He is no longer with us. And then, you know, the, the ridiculous clay bust <laughs> of Lionel Richie in the Hello video. <laughs> Which is, I've got to say, that that's a terrible, you know, that that does not look flattering. Well, you know, Lionel Richie is a goofy-looking man anyway, and then then you mold him out of orange clay, and it was it was basically just it was like it was jaw, it was like it was jaw with Jerry Curl. I saw them open up for a Big Jaw with Jerry fish. Curl. Yes. I think it was Hootie and the Blowfishes. First name, <laughs> the original name, <laughs> Jaw and the Jerry Curl. Um, <laughs> do you remember the plot? The plot for that video was... Uh, there was a blind girl. Yes, he was in love with a blind girl and, and didn't think that she noticed him. And then she ends up you know, sculpting this horrific... <laughs> Orange clay bust. <laughs> Which he's supposed to say, well, that's wonderful. No, really. It captured my essence as long as I'm hideous. <laughs> that's the problem. It did really capture his essence. <laughs> it, really, it was that moment when you're watching it and you're going, geez, he is a goofy looking cuss. Wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, the uh, Billy Don't Lose My Number video for uh uh phil collins where he's parodying other videos yeah that i i thoroughly enjoyed that video at the time but now you have to remember what the hell he was referencing i wonder if uh heartbeat city belongs on this list Hmm. because they had you might think and drive and magic and uh hello again and the first three had videos. Hello again, didn't. And iconic videos at that because. Oh, yeah. Magic, Drive, yeah. Oh, yeah. You might think, good heavens. Because for, you know, for a while, that was like you know, the, the greatest video ever. I did like it. I, I don't know. And then with Magic, he had him walking around the swimming pool. <laughs> yes. and, and I think, Paul, wasn't Paulina in the Drive video? She was like the crazy girl, and then that's where. I never really watched the video. I was I was always kind of like eh, on the video or on the the song, so I never really sat through the video. And well, most people remember it now from the the video the guy did for Live Aid, where he played that song over pictures of starving children. It was very disturbing. Hmm. I had not remembered that. Must have blocked it out. Probably. But yeah, it was the drive. <laughs> it was the drive video where uh, that's where Rico Kasic met Paulina. Wow. And said, hey, I think I'm going to dump my wife and marry this 19-year-old. Hey, I'm a goofy-looking bastard. I can get a supermodel. <laughs> <laughs> and they're still married to this day. So. Wow. Hope for all geeky bastards out there. So then as we kind of, you know, as we move away from the 
this kind of middle eighties period. Uh, and and I, I, I brought up the Grammy thing for a reason because, uh, in 86, then the Grammy goes to Graceland hmm. by Paul Simon, which had two singles. You can call me Al uh, okay. and boy in the bubble. Uh, 87 was the Joshua tree. Oh, okay. Well, you know, there, how many did that have? At least three, at least three, but I can't think of anything beyond three. Well, it was, uh, streets have no name and still haven't found them looking for was bullet, the blue sky single. I don't know. With or without you. With or without you. That's yeah. I don't know. Bullet, the blue sky was, Hmm. or what about so by, uh, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. That's another very video-driven album. Sledgehammer. <laughs> and then... Sledgehammer, sledgehammer. <laughs> and over the years, we've been hit with a sledgehammer <laughs> about the video. Yes, we get yes, it. Yes, <laughs> But that's, you know, that's one. I guess it's because... It's an excellent album. It's a good album. Uh, but I guess because he always sort of tried to stay above above the fray. Um <laughs> What was the other huge hit off of there? Not in your eyes. Not Red Rain. Wasn't there another like massive massive single off that record? We're going to find it and we're going to go, "Oh yeah, how could we forget that?" Cuz a stinking sledgehammer. <laughs> well, it, I can remember, you know, uh, you know the the later stuff where he tries to be more political or more world. That is such a pedestrian song. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like it gives me ear cancer and I want to turn off the radio when I hear it, but it's just, it's kind of lame. But and it's, it's about, it's about screwing. You know, I mean, it's. Is it really? I haven't even paid attention to the lyrics. That, that, I mean, the sledgehammers his penis. It's just. Wow, it's, that's it's, incredibly pedestrian for him. It's almost like he's doing a parody, you know. It's like, oh, that oh is, this is the garbage you want? All right, fine. <laughs> Here you go. My penis is a hammer. Ha. Huh. You don't want me dressing up like a sunflower? Here's my penis. It's a hammer. It's his take on uh, Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. You want a hit, bitch? I'll give you a hit. (laughs) And those of you that don't know what we're talking about, uh, if you've ever wondered what Dancing in the Dark is about, if you've ever wondered about how you can't start a fire without a spark, uh, Springsteen had been in the studio. He'd recorded about 30 songs for this album. And was it Landau? Was it Landau who said, I don't hear a single? Yep. Uh, as manager John Landau, I was like, Bruce, I don't hear a single. I need one more song. And so Dancing in the Dark, if you listen to the lyrics, it, it totally makes sense, oh, too. Yeah. Dancing in the Dark is is about trying to write a hit single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you told me that after i you know listened to the song you know a bunch of times and then you go back there and now every every lyric makes sense and you're just like oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> that's really fucking clever of him and he's angry he's angry that he's got to write this song cuz he feels like he's got enough already but they're telling him that you know you can't release the album until you've got the single you can't start a fire without a spark and he's tired of working on the album. You know, I'm sick of sitting around here. <laughs> it's Yeah, it was funny. And a good song. Yeah. And as we all know now, that's the one with Courtney Cox. So, yeah. And that's an interesting case, too, because uh, up until that point, 
his biggest hit had been Hungry Heart off of yeah. off of the river which it's a good song it's okay and uh the the river you know for all of you people out there who are saying what about born to run born to run i'm sorry to break it to you was not a real big chart hit and that's what we're talking about here uh hungry heart was his his biggest chart hit and and the river gets wildly successful and and so what does he do he uh releases nebraska as the follow-up album which is acoustic guitar it's recorded on a four uh, four track cassette recorder i mean that is the version that was released which i don't know how the hell you master a record off of a cassette tape wasn't there wasn't there something about that where they tried were there sessions or they started to do something yes. else because you're right they were demos and it was actually uh, they had started recording uh, some of the songs that ended up on Born in the USA. Oh, no, I didn't know. In fact, if you look at the uh, liner notes for Born in the USA, you're going to see a lot of 1982 copyright dates on <laughs> the songs, even though the record came out in 84, and that's why, because he tried he tried recording them with a full band, and he found that he liked the demos better. <laughs> and so in... It's really surprising he was able to release that album because he had not really, uh, he was not a, a huge commercial artist at that point. He kind of has that that Lou Reed, you know, that we talked about a few episodes ago where somehow he manages to do whatever the hell he wants and someone yeah. still puts out his albums all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's incredibly rare, but yeah. And so, you know, Nebraska is, is one of my, it's actually one of my favorites uh, by him. But it's a very, you know, very stark, and it's pretty much uh, the character studies of different kinds of uh, desolate people and, you know, murderers and all kinds of stuff. And it's supposed to be kind of his meditation on Ronald Reagan's America is you know, kind of what the upshot is. A long way of saying that he's the last guy you would suspect is going to end up milking six singles <laughs> off of a record. And uh, it, it's really kind of surprising the way that it happened. You know, Dancing in the Dark was his first video. Yeah. They got Brian De Palma to direct that video. And in retrospect, I'm trying to figure out what did Brian De Palma bring to the table of a lip sync performance video that any kid out of film school couldn't have done? <laughs> the name. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't seen the video, you know, countless times in that, you know, there's nothing that goes, oh, wow, what's how stylish and iconic. <laughs> I mean, oh, my gosh, that camera move. Did you see that? That was so De Palma. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, obviously, you know, they were like drinking buddies or something. I mean, it's just, you know, like, why else would you bother spending that kind of money? And I didn't have MTV until much later. And so I had to rely on Friday night videos on NBC. Oh, wow. For a lot of my, and, and at friends' houses too. I'd mm-hmm. see a lot of videos on, at friends'. In fact, we, we, sometimes you go to your friend's house, you'd sit and you'd watch MTV for three and four hours. I mean, you look back on it now and you're like, wow, that's pathetic. But I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's the hold that it had on us. But when, when Dancing in the Dark, the video came out, uh, they, were, they played it twice. 
they played it at the top of the show and then they played it again <laughs> at the end of the show because this was just you know such a big deal and you know, even as a what 13 year old kid i'm sitting there watching it and i'm going really <laughs> yeah i think i think uh, the record company paid for that payola <laughs> <laughs> I think we should talk a little bit about Purple Rain because that's another one of those things that I I just I can't see I can't see Prince sitting down and saying I'm going to write a record that has all these singles. <laughs> so I think it was more a product of its time kind of, you know, finding singles to release. And the way that all kind of you know dovetailed with the movie and uh, MTV and radio play, and that was that was a really you know a big event. Prince's movie, and uh, I've not I've watched the movie a couple of times. I'm I don't I'm not a big insider into it. I don't know if if you've I've seen it. I, I yeah I, I've owned it in every format on they've uh, released it on. So uh, I mean, do you think it's a good movie? You know, do I like the movie? Yes. Is it a good movie? No, no, probably not. I mean, it's very 80s and campy, but, you know, it's one of those things where I remember it from my childhood. And, you know, I, I remember uh, uh, when I saw it and uh, when it came on, uh, like, HBO or something that I was, you know, having told my folks, we have to sit and we have to watch it again. Because that's, you know, you just didn't really watch, you know, things twice. And uh, I just had to see it again and again. And um, But it's not really, I mean, you know, the story of, you know, a tortured artist who, you know, overcomes adversity to uh, while the audience is kind of, you know, cliched and overdone and, you know, but... I love the music. I love Prince. I, I uh, and it's got the time in there doing Jungle Love and the Bird, <laughs> and I think Apollonia Six does what's it One called? Song, um, sex something. Sex shooter. Sex shooter. Uh, what I would be curious, and maybe I don't want to put you on the spot here, and if it's if it's been a while, that's okay. But what I'm curious about is what I remember of that movie is just so much performance. And I'm not faulting it for that, but I, I, how much plot really could there be? Because it was only like a 90-minute movie. How much story can there really be in there and and pack in all that performance footage? Uh, well, I, that, that's kind of what makes it campy is that you, ha- you kind of had, you know, whoever wrote it was trying to cram a bunch of plot. And, you know, you, if you take out the performances, you know, the movie would be, you know, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say probably about a half hour, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, you have to really kind of, you know, figure out how to, how to build Prince as the kid, as the underdog, the time as the bad guys, you know, the, the problems with his, you know, with his dad and, you know, uh, the thing with Apollonia and the infighting with the, uh, Wendy and Lisa and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can pull all those things out, but there's, you know, you know the, the the cheesy dialogue that they just sort of have to make <laughs> these large leaps just to get the story going. Yeah, that that that's what makes it, you know, cheesy and campy. So is it like, but, an, is it like an R-rated 
episode of the Love Boat. You know, you, know, you take like you take because you know, the Love Boat was a was a, a sixty minute show, and they would do three three stories per show. So is it like taking one of those stories out of the Love Boat and then putting performances between it? Is that a good way to describe it, or am I way off base? Well, no, they did actually have you know three stories. I mean, they had Prince at home, Prince at the club, and prince with women so you're saying it was exactly like the love boat oh yeah <laughs> i would say it was exactly someone from the love who wrote for the love boat may have wrote this i mean it's, <laughs> it's definitely that that cheesy and that obvious and that you know uh heavy-handed yeah if only we could have gotten a guest starring role for jimmy walker <laughs> <laughs> and the dallas cowboy cheerleaders it seemed like every other week they were on <laughs> and then so you say all that about the movie, and I think even people that you know look back on the movie fondly, you know, as they get older, they realize it is a bit of a mess. Uh, but then performances are still great. But I mean, then that album, my God, that album, uh, easily one of the greatest albums ever released. Yeah. And uh, apparently, uh, Computer Blue had to be edited to fit. To fit onto the LP, yes. and so right now, Computer Blue sounds like two songs crammed together because you know, it, it kind of stops all of a sudden and goes into that kind of long uh, lyrical soaring guitar solo. But apparently, there's like a third section, so it was actually supposed to be kind of like three songs crammed together. Have you heard the the full length version on bootleg or anything? I have. Uh, it's been a really long time because I, I actually got it on a cassette. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a. Uh, Someone one of those uh I don't even know if they still do that anymore. When radio stations would have these uh you know uh things where you you know, they'd promote the fact that they were gonna have uh, imports. Al- well like sales, yeah, and it yeah. was just gonna be, you know, a bunch of dealers and there's gonna be imports and all and imports being the, the clue imports means bootlegs. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I, I was there and the 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 people there they they had the best scam going. They they were trying to sell their bootlegs cheaper than everybody else. So what they would do is they would dub their bootleg onto a cassette for you. So uh-huh. you, it was half the price, half the sound quality. But so uh, I my you know twelfth generation cassette of that <laughs> song, which you know by the time I got it was you know early nineties, and it was uh, not a really good quality version of it. But I remember I remember listening to it and I was like, oh. Wait a minute. There's a whole extra part of this thing that I've never heard of, and uh, I've never heard it. And apparently, it is supposed to just be jaw-droppingly good. And you can never tell if that's just because nobody's heard it and they're just saying that. Because <laughs> I mean, Computer Blue, even though it's not well remembered, is an excellent song. Yes, and and that that second movement of it is is just. It's it's spectacular. It's unlike anything he had ever done before. It's unlike anything that he's done since. It was just it was so melodic and it was just a beautiful piece of music. So is the long version is it is it, being, that, is it that much better? I remember being blown away, really? but I don't. I, it's been so long that I, I'll, I'll I'll have to see if there's some, somewhere. I mean, I'm sure the internet's are full of that stuff, so I'm sure I'll find it somewhere. But his lawyers are pretty rabid. It's hard to find print stuff on the internet at least on youtube <laughs> hmm i wonder hmm. well he must have good lawyers because it seems like everything's on youtube <laughs> yeah prince does not hang around on youtube for very long 
<laughs> That's why I'm never able to link to print songs on my Facebook page because you never know how long they're going to actually last. Uh, well, you know, I was thinking uh, that with 1999, he was kind of like setting himself up for the, the single success. Um, but I guess maybe not because I, I was trying to see how many singles were from there. Three. So, well, I guess three, and mm-hmm. he went, how many, five from the next one, or six? Uh, I want to say four or five. Um, let's go crazy. Let's go crazy. Uh, uh, when Doves Cry, the title track, I Would Die For You. Um, and I actually think that uh, Take Me With You was released as a single, but it didn't get a whole lot of action. Yeah, so. People were craving Prince so much. I mean, they were playing the B-sides. Remember, Erotic City was the B-side oh, to Let's yeah. Go Crazy. That got played on the radio around here, and I think it did elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That was another just kind of uh, crazy thing. I also well, think... Uh, go ahead. He was so prolific. He could have you know extras, you know, pull a uh, Beatles and put something out that you, know, you hadn't heard before and isn't on any album. It makes it... Good reason to go, finally, good reason to go buy a uh, single and an album. Yeah. Clever guy. And it, it's good that when he finally put out the uh, the B-sides on that Hits collection, because mm-hmm. he he's got some excellent B-sides. But how long did it take to, I mean, that was, what, 95 when he put that out? Yeah. <laughs> and he'd, been, he'd put out, what, six albums worth of, you know, B-sides before he puts that out? That's... And another kind of irritating thing is that uh, on the 12-inch singles, for the songs that got 12-inch singles, not all of them did, but the ones that did, the B-sides were also extended versions. <laughs> but you only got the 7-inch the single versions on uh, the B-side collection. So there's still a lot of 12-inch singles. 12-inch single versions out there that, that have it. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's kind that of unreal. Unbelievably prolific. Uh, Huey Lewis in the News Sports is another interesting one because that's another artist. I guess the the point that I'm trying to make here is that I th- I think a lot of this whole blockbuster thing, not a, not it was not as calculated as it might seem. A lot of it was just kind of dumb luck because the artists that were having these albums were not necessarily artists where you would expect it. I mean, and, and Huey Lewis in the News is a perfect example. Well, you know, we were talking. Uh in the earlier episode about uh, Smile and how, you know, the, the, there was enough where, you know, the artists, you know, the Beatles were putting this album out and the Beach Boys said, oh, well, we have to put our version, mm-hmm. you know, and, and try and best each other. But these were all coming out at the exact same time. So there wasn't any, we're trying to best you with our number of singles to your numbers. It, was, it just all hit at once. Yeah, exactly. That's That's amazing. Because, you know, uh, up before sports came out, there was picture this. Which had "Do You Believe in Love" on it? Love that song. And "Working for a Living," which nobody remembers. <laughs> and I think that was it for yeah. the singles off of that. And then sports comes out, and that 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 thing hung around for a long time. Oh, and yeah. it was also uh, because there was so much other stuff going on. It was number two on the album charts for a very long time. I didn't research this. But I'd be curious to find out. Uh, how long it was number two? Because it was number two for forever because it just couldn't quite get to number one. And I remember I saw an interview uh, with Huey Lewis the week that 
sports finally went to number one. And uh, somebody asked him, you know, how does it feel? And he says, I'll feel better next week when we're back to number two. And by God, if they weren't. <laughs> hey, you know, that's not a bad place to be with, you know, when you're you're getting beat out by, you know, some of the best albums of the 80s, you know, like Virgin or Thriller. That's pretty good. You know, it's it's always been said that uh, Huey Lewis and the News were the uh, – the luckiest bar band ever. People kind of denigrate <laughs> their their skill and their talent and basically say that every every major American city had a band that was just as good as Huey Lewis in the News. They just happened to get lucky. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, since we come from a town and well and and are close to another one where there are two local heroes with Michael Stanley and Joe Grishecki, both of whom are kind of listed as, you know, uh uh, you know, could have been something kind of guys. And, you know, I, I, as much as I have heard things from both of those that I enjoy, I think Huey Lewis is really great at writing a pop song. I mean, I, I, I think saying that, you know, he's just another, you know, local hero who made it big is a bit of an insult to his, you know, songwriting skills. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, you know, from, now, Grant, uh, past, uh, Small World was in my, you know, was where I stopped kind of paying attention because there were a couple of good songs on Small World, but I think past that, I haven't, you know, paid as much attention. But from his first album to, uh, Four. Four. I mean, there are just a crap load of great <laughs> songs. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, he, he has more hits in those, what, four or five albums? Four albums. Four albums. Then, you know, every other local hero can hope to dream. And the album tracks were usually pretty damn good, too. Hell yeah. It wasn't like it was, it wasn't like it was just a hit single machine. I mean, it wasn't like one, you know, like the, the, the 60s version of let's put out 27 albums <laughs> and have one, one good song on each of them with filler for the rest. Right. They were loaded with excellent songs. I actually have, because uh, I've always loved uh, Picture This. That's always been my favorite uh, Huey Lewis album. Mm-hmm. And I I decided, I'd never had the the very first one, the self-titled debut, um, and it had, had been out of print. And I, I've, I'm, I'm still Mr. CD. I still like the physical <laughs> CDs. I know that makes me lame, but I'm old kids. Sorry. <laughs> I found a, a twofer. Uh, that had yes. the first album and picture this on it, and I got it, and it's twenty songs, and I'll I'll put it on it at work, and it's just a great way to spend an hour and a half. I mean, it's uh, it's good stuff. I mean, it, is it going to change the world? No, but not everything has to. No, but you can definitely, to me, you know, you can definitely see where the hits came from. It's not like, you know, he came out with Sports and Four, which I would definitely say are his two mega superstar monumental right. hit, hit machines. But, you know, you can look at, picture this, you can look at the first one and go, okay, I can see where they're going to go for this. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not, uh, it's not like it was a producer. It's not like it was, even though they did have iconic videos, I think. I mean, they really are, you know, remembered for their videos, 
again, it was still their songs. They still write great songs. And I actually think Small World is an excellent album. Yes, I know you and Brandon like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that was, I think that was a marketing problem because that was going to be their big mature adult album. (laughs) It was going to be their big stylistically diverse album. And I think a lot of people were expecting, oh, it's going to be like Peter Gabriel doing you know, a song with Yuso Endor. Well, no, it's Huey Lewis's version of a more mature kind of a sound. I personally, I don't think there's a bad song on that, on that particular album. It's actually one of my favorites. Yeah. I, In fact, uh, it might be my second favorite behind Picture This. Um, perfect World is okay. but that's about the only one I can remember Uh, give me the keys and I'll drive you crazy that was a good one (laughs) sounds like a very uh, country song actually it's not oh just the the title of that yeah very 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 peppy very peppy Uh, so where this all ends for me anyway is where it began which is with Michael Jackson (laughs) because The album Bad was definitely scientifically formulated in a lab to produce maximum yield of hit singles. And it it was an obsession of his. Uh, You probably remember the stories of 100 million. That was his goal for Bad. Because at this point, Thriller had sold like 40 million copies, and he wanted Bad to sell 100 million copies worldwide. And so apparently, he literally had the number 100 million written out on pieces of paper and like hanging everywhere, like hanging in his bathroom mirror and hanging on the studio walls. And with Michael Jackson, you can never tell how much of it is true and how much of it is just, you know, crazy stuff that people made up because it's going to sound believable. Yeah. Uh, but he was obsessed with topping the success of Thriller and uh, recorded uh, Quincy Jones claims they recorded over 30 songs mm-hmm. for that album and the special edition albums, uh, special edition version that, that came out several years ago just had a couple of uh, a couple of those as extra tracks. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think every single had a video. There was the huge marketing push. Uh, there was an extraordinary number, uh, of singles off of that, you know, he, and, and the bad video, you know, the, the event, he kind of tried to combine, uh, the event of thriller with the street vibe of beat it. So you got this huge, I mean, uh, Scorsese directed the video, for crying out loud. And you you had the the big... He's no De Palma. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I mean, Wesley Snipes was starring in the video, in the preamble. The the preamble, nobody remembers. You ain't bad, you ain't nothing. You know, they shot it in black and white. Uh, And ultimately what happens is bad sells 10 million copies. And there, there are easily less than a hundred albums in the history of the music business that have have sold ten million copies. I mean, that is an extraordinary achievement. Yes. 
But when you're coming off an album that has sold 40 million copies, uh, it's a failure. It's <laughs> it's considered a failure to the man who was obsessed with with 100, 100 million. 100 million. And so I think I think bad for me anyway kind of closed out the blockbuster the era of the blockbuster album. Yeah. So it just, you know, Michael Jackson ended up bookending it in my opinion. <laughs> but I think the concept of the blockbuster album has been uh has been tried to be manufactured. I think to me uh, as much as I love pop culture uh especially in the last 10 years I've gotten really tired of following pop culture because people are too aware and now what what used to be um organic is now manufactured to me whether or not you like um lady gaga she's the manufactured version of madonna's career (laughs) and i don't mean you know fine you didn't you know if you didn't grow up with madonna you haven't seen it before but i have and it's it's like she's trying to become a pop culture icon by you know by manufacturing her pop culture status rather than to actually she's not being irreverent she's trying to be irreverent you know it's i mean the difference is you know people aren't out creating blockbuster albums anymore they're trying to manufacture a blockbuster album. They're trying to do exactly what what Bad did, mm-hmm. is they're not actually trying to let it happen. They're trying to make it happen. And when you try and make things happen, if it succeeds, it just doesn't succeed. It it's it tastes it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's a hollow victory. You know, it's you know whether or not since this time there have been blockbuster albums. There have been big selling albums there have been even some ones that have you know some you know singles but i don't think we're ever going to see something like this happen again because i mean as i'm as we're doing this topic i'm looking you know since then to try and see you know where this has led have people tried to recreate it yes but has anyone succeeded no i mean you might get a album you know uh um I'm trying to think of, you know, something, you know, uh, something recent like Lady Gaga's uh, last album was, to me, felt like a manufactured version of something trying to become a blockbuster. But there wasn't anything else surrounding it. You know, there isn't a, there isn't that feeling that, you know, there's multiple different artists releasing, you know, five and six singles off of their albums all at once and causing this big groundswell on the pop charts. You know, it's it's really, uh, it was really a, a, a one brief moment in time that, you know, since then people may have been influenced by, but they haven't been able to recreate it. That's well said. That's kind of exactly how I feel, that, that this <clears throat> this kind of extraordinary occurrence, you know, how, however it happened, why ever it happened, it did, and it happened in a very limited, very limited, very limited <laughs> amount of time. And then it was gone. Yeah. Uh, didn't even talk about Faith by George Michael. That's another one. <laughs> I think uh, he, he's been talked about enough. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, I, I did thoroughly enjoy uh, Freedom, though. Wrong album. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so have we exhausted this topic? Um, well, yeah, and we just about hit, we just hit a, an hour. So? Uh, I want to wrap this up just by saying, uh, I've mentioned Spotify on here a few times, and uh, thanks to my brother, I found out that it's free. So, you know, uh, I, if you if you, ha- if you haven't heard of Spotify, go find it, check it out, and you can download it for free, and you have to listen to some ads if you want to click on stuff. But everything we talk about on here, except for, what was it? Peter, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. <laughs> except for that, they're all With there. With his hammer penis. <laughs> Sounds like a really weird superhero, doesn't it? <laughs> Hammer penis! Hammer penis will save you. I'm not sure how. I don't want to be his sidekick. <laughs> Scrotum boy! Uh, uh, we're not getting endorsed by Spotify, but you know everything we have on here, we, we don't play the music, but if you join on Spotify and listen to it for free, you can you know join in the fun. That so, sounds. That sounds awesome. Exactly. Is is that like a, do they have to do it through Facebook or not? Well, they set up something with Facebook so that when you, if you want to log in, you have to have a Facebook account. So if you don't have one, you'd have to make one and then that's your login. And I tried to circumvent that by changing my password to a password that isn't my Facebook thing. And it let me go in. But every time you get out of it, you have to re you have to reinsert your password, which was a pain in the fucking ass. So I changed it back to my Facebook password, and now it's happy. Pain in the <laughs> ass. Back to <laughs> Hammer Penis. <laughs> the mortal enemy. <laughs> All right. So we have, uh, we have the email. We have Mr80s at rocketmail.com. We have the blog, mr80s.wordpress.com. We've got the Facebook page, Mr. 80s. In all of those cases, we spell it out, M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S. Why is there no apostrophe, you might ask? Because then that would mean the 80 was possessing something, not that there was more than one. (laughs) Thank you, grammar boy. (laughs) I'm not sure who to say goodnight to. I didn't think ahead of time who to say goodnight to. I will vamp while he thinks of something. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. Um, um, I guess we'll just say goodnight to Hammer Penis. <laughs> He's turned into the star of the show. So good night, Hammer Penis. Good night. Wherever you are. <laughs>